When I was in junior high, I read a book called The Ministry of Healing. It, it, it literally changed my understanding of many things. But I'd like to start this presentation today by reading you an ex- excerpt from that book. And it had to do with the power of emotion. Do you think that our emotions have a potential power over aspects of our health? Um, it, It starts this way, and take a look at this slide. It says, the relationship that exists between the mind and the body is very intimate. When one is affected, the other sympathizes. In other words, it goes both ways. What happens to the body affects the mind. What happens to the mind affects the body. The condition of the mind affects the health to a far greater degree than many realize. Many of the diseases from which men, and of course nowadays we'd say women as well, suffer are the result of mental depression, grief, anxiety, discontent, remorse, guilt, distrust, all tend to break down the life forces and to invite decay and death. Wow, that's, that's a lot to think about. All these things, all these negative emotions tend to break down the life forces and to invite decay and death. Disease is sometimes produced and is often greatly aggravated by the imagination. Now, let's just stop and talk about that for a little bit because this is a very, very, very powerful statement. It doesn't say that all disease is always caused by what we're thinking, by what we imagine, by what we're afraid of, by our negative emotions. What it says is that disease is sometimes produced simply because what we're thinking. In other words, just what we're thinking what we allow ourselves to dwell on can actually in of itself cause disease, sometimes. But it is often, frequently, many times, much of the time, greatly aggravated by the imagination. Many are lifelong invalids, who might be well if they only thought so. Now, you know, by, the, by this point, some of you may be thinking, ah, I don't know, it's a, it's a little too mystical for me. That doesn't sound very scientific. Or is it? Again, many are lifelong invalids who might be well if they only thought so. Actually, that's that's good news. In other words, 
many who feel like they're lifelong invalids actually have the power to come out of that if they just thought so. It it reminds me of um, a great quote from, I believe it was Henry Ford. He said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, can you finish that for me? You're right. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Because if you think you can't, of course you're not going to put any effort into it. You're not going to put any resources into it because you can't do it. It's impossible. It's not going to work. But if you think you can and you're willing to stick it through, right, like Thomas Edison, uh, you know, genius is... Is uh, what one uh, percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration? You gotta stick it through it. Just do it. Work at it. Many imagine that every slight exposure will cause illness, and the evil effect is produced because it is expected. Many die. How many? Many die from disease, the cause of which is wholly imaginary. Wow, this is some powerful stuff. You can tell why even as as a junior high student, I was just eating this up. This was amazing. And, And this statement concludes by saying, in the treatment of the sick, The effect of mental influence should not be overlooked. Rightly used, this influence affords one of the most effective agencies for combating disease. I believe that this is the cornerstone of lifestyle medicine. It is also the cornerstone of nutritional medicine. Well, wait a minute. So how is what you're thinking... Relate to nutritional medicine. I will show you tonight that there's a very, very powerful relationship between what we're thinking and what we end up eating and between what we are eating and what we end up thinking. The mind-body connection. A great study... I read this many years later, because after I read that initial statement from the book, The Ministry of Healing, I go, wow, that's really amazing, but there's a lot of scientists out there, a lot of doctors out there that didn't really buy into it. Again, just didn't sound very scientific. But in comes Dr. Richard Davidson, the head of the Laboratory for Effective Neuroscience, at the University of Wisconsin. And he published a study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, one of the most prestigious scientific organizations in the world. An amazing, insightful study where he actually showed that you are physically what you think. And what he did is he did a study that looked at resentment versus joy. What are you contemplating right now? And the subjects he chose 
for this study was middle-aged women who were going in to get their annual flu shot. It was actually a very simple experiment conducted in a very elaborate way. They, these women were going to get the, the flu shot, but for seven minutes just before they received the flu shot, they were, at, they were randomly divided into two groups, and one group was told just Think about some wonderful experience in your past, something that gave you a sense of joy and pleasure, and I want you to just journal, just, just write down a few thoughts about that experience. Seven minutes. Then they would go and get the flu shot, and six months later, they would come in and get a blood test that examined how well that flu shot was able to stimulate the production of antibodies against the expected strain of influenza for that year. Brilliant study. But the other group that had been randomly assigned to, well, in this case, they had been asked to contemplate an experience in their past that still causes them bitterness and resentment when they think about it. For seven minutes, these women just stopped what they were doing and focused in on that negative emotional experience that they had experienced. Went on to get the flu shot. Six months later, they come back. And get their blood drawn to see how well the immune system was able to mount an antibody response against that strain of virus. What Dr. Davidson discovered was that the women who had just for seven minutes focused on those negative, bitter, emotional experiences had a dramatic decrease in their immune system's production of antibodies against that strain of virus. The power of the mind. That's why we need to be thinking head first, right? We need to be thinking, take care of the brain. Take care of your thoughts. Bring Every thought under captivity, that is so critical because if we don't, our thoughts will control us. The lower brain will end up controlling the body. And that's a very dangerous thing is to allow the lower brain. Some would call it the reptilian brain, but it's just the lower brain that's supposed to be subservient to the frontal lobe, the higher brain. We need to learn to reason from cause to effect and to focus on the higher brain. So today's discussion is entitled Stress, Emotions, Food, Adrenals, Caffeine, and Blood Sugar Levels. Whenever I give uh, presentations 
for other groups. They say, can you like narrow that down a little bit? <laughs> we can't get all those words into the title. I go, no, I want to talk about all those things. I want people to know that we're not just talking about stress. We're talking about all these variables. To, to really highlight this interrelationship between stress and health, let me tell you the research of Dr. Dean Ornish. In 2008, Dr. Dean Ornish once again amazed the medical community by, by publishing a study that just kind of changed the perception of what is possible in medicine. Just over 15 years before he had also amazed the medical community by showing that heart disease was reversible. Now, to the careful observer, to the individual who is willing to not just read consensus papers, but actually to reason from cause to effect, this, that had been known for decades. All kinds of studies, animal studies and other studies have shown you can reverse heart disease. But it had not been accepted by the medical community until Dr. Ornish actually did a study on humans and proved that you can reverse heart disease. Now, once again, in 2008, Dr. Ornish is, is showing that we can modify how our genes express themselves even in somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer. Wow, that's exciting. What Dr. Ornish did is that he applied the very same strategies that he had used showing that you could reverse heart disease and applied them to men who had been diagnosed with early prostate cancer. It was a pilot study. They had 30 men, and he essentially gave them the, the choice. You can go have surgery on your prostate. You can just do what's called watchful waiting, which is the more popular approach now. Just, well, you know, let's just wait and see what happens. Now, that's maybe a very a, a better option than doing surgery uh, for many. But why not do something functional? to change your risk that you already know you have, right? Why not do something about it? Passive stress, just sitting around waiting, actually depresses your immune system. It makes it more likely for cancer to grow, more likely for any disease to spread and get worse. Passive stress is really bad for us. Active stress, on the other hand, it's actually good for us. What is active stress? It's when we say, all right, I see where my problems are. I'm going to learn more about my health. I'm going to do broader health testing. I'm going to look at my blood work and try to find where the gaps are, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do what I can. And that's so critical, especially for somebody with cancer. Because individuals with cancer many times buy into the 
I'm trying to think of a nicer way to say this, <laughs> where I just buy into the lie that, you know, all you can do is just get treatment. That's all you can do. So they, and I've talked to their support groups many times, and it's like, well, I'm doing everything I can. I'm getting this treatment, I'm getting that treatment. And I go, no, you're not doing everything you can. There's all kinds of obvious things that you could be doing right now. You could take on this active stress where you do the obvious things. Am I exercising? Oh, no, but I have cancer. Well, that's all the more reason to exercise. Not, not hard, just make it part of your daily schedule. How are you doing with your diet? Well, it's too late to change my diet. I already have cancer. Really? Have you really given up? No, this is, the time, this is the time that you want to make that change. Do everything you can within your power that's reasonable, that's prudent. That's active stress. It's good for you. It dramatically enhances the immune system. And so, so what Dr. Oren has presented for these men who had prostate cancer, he says we're going to do four main things. We're going to go to a 100% plant-based diet. It helped reverse heart disease. Maybe it can help you too. We're going to do moderate exercise, an average of about 30 minutes of exercise every day. We're not talking about running marathons. Okay? You know, we're, uh, we're talking about just getting out there and doing something, feeling good, living. Number three, they were all taught stress management techniques. They were all taught how to carve out certain times of the day when they would stop the madness, right? Stop the craziness and focus on relaxing, calming down. And then finally, they were all involved in a weekly support group where they would talk about how they're feeling. Big study about 20 years ago at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center showed that women who had been diagnosed with terminal breast cancer divided into two equal random groups, all of them received standard optimal medical care at the medical center, but one group, the only thing they did differently is they, they met together once a week to talk about how they're feeling. What's that going to do? You know, it's just talking about something. They lived, on average, twice as long as the other women who had been randomly assigned to all the same treatment, except they weren't meeting once a week to talk about it. It's really important. And that underscores the importance of us taking, carving a day out of the week to really focus on getting away from all the madness and all the crazy schedule in our lives. So, all right, that sounds pretty, it's not going to cause any harm, right? There's no danger of doing this type of therapy. What happened? And what happened just, just really was an amazing revelation to the medical community. The study was called the Geminal Study, which looked at 
at how genes can change their expression in men undergoing intensive nutrition and lifestyle intervention. And essentially, this is how it worked. In three months, 48 disease-preventing genes, these are genes that have been well-established over years of research, that if these, these genes are associated with preventing disease, these genes actually make you healthier. So these 48 disease-preventing genes that had been turned off at the beginning of the study, they actually did biopsies of the prostate gland, and they measured whether these genes were on or off. Are they working for you, or are they just, just off? All these good genes were turned off. But now, three months later, they're all turned back in the on direction, like a dimmer switch that has just been steadily being turned up, turned up, turned up. You see, genes do control our health, but only if they're turned on or turned off. What is it that determines that? See, it's not the gene itself that determines our health. Mostly is what we're doing with that gene. Is it possible that I can actually control my genes with my thoughts? Dr. Ornish went on to show that out of the 453 genes which were known to promote disease like breast cancer and prostate cancer that had all been turned on at the beginning of the study were now all dramatically turned back towards the opposition. Again, a dimmer switch. It's not on or on, it's a continuum. Which direction are we stimulating these genes in their expression? So you see that there was just this amazing inactivation of bad genes and and reactivation of the good genes in just three months. I've I've been given the privilege to start working on a research project where we're going to be looking at this in 120 diabetics and being able to test this not at three months, but at one month, and three months, and one year. Why? Because I firmly believe it doesn't take three months to turn on your good genes and turn off your bad genes. I think that happens within days and weeks. What we do today powerfully influences our health tomorrow and next week. Okay, so we have this dilemma that during stress, and we all know what that means, we've all experienced stress, uh, are, uh, or you know, any kind of acute issues or emotional outbursts, the lower brain functions are continually able to shut down the higher brain functions. This is well understood in psychology and, neural, and neuropsychology. So we need to somehow figure out how is it that I can encourage the higher brain to be in charge more of the time and suppress the the anxiety or the 
the needs, the cravings of the lower brain that aren't thinking about long-term consequences. They're just looking at what seems like, hmm, that looks really good, or that would really feel good, or I'd really like to do that. So all kinds of things going on in the world right now where you, think, where you say, what was that kid or that person thinking? It was all lower brain in charge. <laughs> There's no frontal lobe activity going on right there, right? And so there is this intimate relationship between stress and health. I, I remember um, attending a, a conference. It was a conference that dealt with the Prevention of Diabetes Throughout the Lifespan. It was organized by a great friend of mine, Dr. Glenn Blix, um, back in 1997. And this is when I was in Guam, and he said, Wes, why don't you come out and represent the Pacific and do a talk on, on what's going on with diabetes in the Pacific and, and seeking to reverse diabetes. While I was there at Loma Linda University, there was a a pharmacist, a great speaker, tall, and he had had type 1 diabetes all his life from childhood. And he regularly checked his blood sugar seven times a day. He was giving himself insulin three times a day. Check it before, two hours after the beginning of meals and bedtime. And when you check some part of your body physiology on a regular basis for many days, weeks, months, and years, it gives you a whole new sense of control over your health. It's essentially a form of biofeedback. We know that through biofeedback, by focusing in on some part of your physiology, you can actually change that physiology. But it's because, in, in many cases, because now you can use your frontal lobe. If you don't check your blood sugars, or your, whatever it might be, cholesterol, blood pressure, if you don't check the thing that you know you have a problem with, then how do you know what works and what doesn't work to improve it? You don't. You just don't. You could guess, but you don't really know because we're all different. You need to be able to personalize care. And so, so uh, by checking his blood sugars before and after meals, he pretty quickly realized what foods he could handle and which foods instantly increased his blood sugars. And it's different for different people. But then something unexpected happens. We call it the serendipitous effect of doing the right thing. When you start checking, paying attention to your health, you start seeing new patterns that you would have never seen otherwise. And what happened, he, he, he would keep a little, little diary of, you know, what he was eating, whether or not he was exercising, because we know if you exercise lightly right after meals, you can lower your blood sugar how much? One to three points for every minute that you walk or do some type of moderate exercise. And so he was paying attention to the things he was doing to see what worked. And then he started seeing a new pattern. He said, when I argued with my wife, my blood sugars would always be 50 points higher than they otherwise would have been. 50 points! 
because that was the basis of his lecture, the impact of stress on diabetes, the impact of stress on our bodies. You don't have to be a diabetic for stress to impact your blood sugars. I guarantee you, stress impacts your blood sugars every time, whether you're diabetic, pre-diabetic, or not. That's one reason, by the way, that stress can lower your weight because it creates an environment for some people where they can't eat, but other people, stress causes the weight to shoot up. Why? Because stress stimulates cortisol release, and cortisol release stimulates your liver to dump sugar into the bloodstream, and when you dump sugar into the bloodstream, the pancreas goes, whoa, and, I, and they start producing tons of insulin to try to counteract, and that insulin takes the sugar and turns it into fat. Thank you very much. So if you're trying to lose weight, the last thing you want to do is forget to learn to manage your stress. She said, though, you know, I, uh, but after so many years, as my young daughter grew into her teenage years, he started realizing that when he had an argument with his teenage daughter, his blood sugars went up 90 points. It's all about perception. It's all about control. It's all about how frustrated we get with different situations. <laughs> there was... Um, a middle-aged lady who had been referred to me by her family doctor because while well, her blood sugars were 350, just maxed out. And as I began to talk about her, I could just see the tension in her face, in her shoulders. I, I, it, was, it was obvious to me that she was under a tremendous amount of stress. And so I said, tell me about your life. Tell me about what's going on. And she explained to me that that they'd started having financial difficulties at home. And when you have financial difficulties at home, what happens between husband and wife? A lot of arguments and misunderstandings. And then they lost their home. And then they couldn't live together anymore because they just couldn't, couldn't handle the emotional stress got a divorce. She's losing everything about her life. She's still working, though. She has a good job. She's a nurse. And, and as we're looking at her blood sugar, she said, well, you know, uh, my doctor prescribed to me this antidepressant, and I don't know if I should take it or not. What do you, you, know, what do you think? I said, well, I don't, I don't, and I don't deal with prescriptive medicines, but if your doctor prescribed it, talk to your doctor, and, and maybe you need that right now. A week later, she came back to see me because I was having her check her blood sugars frequently. She says, it's amazing. As soon as I started taking that antidepressant, my blood sugars dropped 50 points on average. Now, her blood sugars needed to come down a lot more than just 50 points. But see, as soon as you are feeling less stress for whatever reason, the body stops that alarm reaction at, at that same level and you're blood sugars, your blood pressure, your triglycerides, your weight, all the things start improving. She, she finally, uh, at work one day, a co-worker pulled her aside and said to her, 
got to get a grip. You're going to lose your job. She's going, what are you talking about? I can't lose my job, but that's the only thing I have left. And her friend, her co-worker, confided in her. says, you are coming across so hostile to everybody in this hospital that you're going to lose your job if you don't change. She told me, she says, I had no idea that I was wearing the stress of my life on my shirt sleeve. See, when we're under stress, we don't realize it. We're like disconnected. Our frontal lobe is just not working well, and so we need to get it back. What are the things available to us to optimize this? In one of the last sessions, I showed you this book cover, this crazy, busy life that we lead. We need to, we need to somehow get this back under control. I feel like I'm talking to myself right now. I mean, I, I've, I, ever since I started doing this seminar series, my life has just been one day after another stress. I had no idea how much work it would be to do all the little things. You know, actually, this is the funnest part. This is the easiest part, doing the talks. The hard part is doing all the emails and, and working with everybody who doesn't understand how to use their computers. And, you know, it's like, ah. <laughs> it's like, go find a teenager and have them help you. <laughs> I'm not sure I can help you. <laughs> okay? um, just this weekend... After a, a crazy, busy schedule with patients and, and working with, um, you know, trying to work on this research protocol and all the challenges going on and all good things. There's no, there's no negative stress in my life right now that I know of. It's just like, too much. Too much of anything is too much. We need to guard against that. So I, I get up early Friday morning, drive down uh, about 4.35 in the morning to San Diego, and I fly to Seattle, and from Seattle I fly to Anchorage, and in Anchorage we drive to Palmer, and I spend a busy weekend doing a long series of meetings. Loved it. Wonderful experience. The battery was running low. Man, was the battery running low. And that Saturday night, the coordinator of the seminar series said, Wes, would you like to go flying over the glacier Sunday morning? All of a sudden, I felt my, my vital reserve coming back. And, and, it ta- and so I get on this, this uh, uh, lake amphibian, and we fly half an hour from Palmer and land on this frozen lake right next to the glaciers and take about two hours walking around the glaciers. And this experience, being in nature is the point. Being in nature, seeing the glory of what God's creation is out in God's country, as the Alaskans call it. We 
actually found some amazing ice caves. Isn't that pretty? It, it reminded me. By the way, um, I posted this on, on Facebook, but I really encourage all of you here or watching around the world, go to, if you do Facebook, go to Youngberg Lifestyle Medical Clinic and like that page. That will keep you posted on all seminars, including this one. Okay? So that way you won't have to keep emailing me to find out where the, what the next link is. It'll be there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, you'll see a lot of these other pictures as well. But as I was there, I, it, was, it was this most amazing, cathartic release of stress that I've experienced in a long time. God has given us many ways to release stress, many healthy ways to release stress. But it seems like we're hell-bent to find shortcuts to release that stress Unfortunately, those shortcuts actually make us more stressed in the long run. So we need to pay attention to what, to the forms of stress management that not only work now, but actually enhance vitality and health over time. And as I was, as I was walking through these blue ice caves, it just it reminded me of the throne of God. And it's, it's like I was just right there at the base of the throne of God, you know, where the, the river of life comes out, feeding the tree of life. And I said, someday, that's going to be amazing, isn't it? And this was just a little touch of that realization of that the world that most of us lead, that the, the, the way we live our lives is so artificial, is so, so set away from real nature and real healing and real restoration, that just two hours out there in, in God's country just restored me. It was amazing. So we need to learn ways to restore, ways to bring balance back into our lives, to, to carve out time. That's why I personally carve out uh, every Saturday, the last day of the week, as a time to restore, to Get that battery built back up. And I don't let anything else crowd that schedule. I'll unfortunately, I'm still learning how to avoid crowding the rest of the week. But I know I have that respite, that opportunity to restore. Now, is there a connection between what we eat and our emotions? Let's look at a real interesting uh, study because, see, nutrigenomics is, is that new study of how nutrition actually changes gene expression. The power of food to alter genetic expression. But is that power also extended to changing the way you think? And here's why. Because I firmly believe that what we think by far has the greatest power over our genetic expression. 
It was Dr. Dean Ornish some years ago as I was listening to him talk. He, uh, people were asking him, well, what, what was it that really worked? You were doing all these different things. How do we know that the nutrition was really important? How do we know what part of it was beneficial? And he turned and said, well, so first of all, everything that we did was based on science. We looked at all the studies that what is beneficial from a lifestyle perspective to improve health, and we included it. All the, the, you know, the exercise, the nutrition, the lifestyle variables. He had patients on various supplements. Everything that was prudent, just do it. If, if there's good evidence with little risk, do it. Stop asking the question, well, we need more research to, just, to figure this out. Really? Every researcher says that. Don't believe that line. It's just, but we don't want to keep doing research because that's what we do. We're researchers. Okay? The reality is that we have a lot of data. We need to start taking advantage of the data now, not wait another 20 years. And they'll still be saying that in 20 years. We still need to do a little bit of research. This is an interesting finding, but we're not really sure what it means. Hmm. Okay, so, so the Dr. Ornish said, he says, I believe that we need to do everything, but I believe that learning to manage stress is by far the most important factor. And I agree with him. There was a study done in, um, I think it was 2002, published in the British Journal of Psychiatry. It's an amazing study uh, done by doctors Gesch and Hammond, Hampson and uh, Crowder. Sounds like a law firm, but actually these were researchers. Uh, they, they, they essentially took young men, 18 years or older, young men who had been violent offenders. They were in the Department of Corrections because they were so impulsive that any offensive comment led them to get into a fight. You know people like that? You got to be careful what you say around them. You got to tiptoe around them because, you know, just in, you know, even without thinking, they can just get really irate and upset and offended. That's a problem. That's a major risk factor. That's not just a, that's just the way I am. That's a major risk factor for disease for people that are easily offended. But it places the rest of us at risk too, doesn't it? We gotta be a little careful. <laughs> and so what they did is they, they, took, they took this group of young violent offenders and they randomly divided them into two equal groups. This was a double-blinded study, the, the gold standard of all studies. And when I read the initial methods of the study, I go, wow, who came up with that idea? They gave these violent offenders in prison, they gave them mineral supplements and a capsule of fish oil. I go, oh, that's not going to work. You got to change everything. You got to change their diet. You got to change everything. But see, you can't change somebody's diet and call it a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. 
right? People are going to know if, they're changing, if you're changing their diet. <laughs> yeah, if you're eating a whole bunch of vegetables and fruits and whole grains, that can't be a blinded study. But what they found was is that after an average of 142 days, these young violent defenders who had just happened to be taking the real minerals and DHA, EPA oils, now had 35% less violent and hostile acts. The researchers were blown away. This worked far better than any anger management program that had ever been done. It worked better than any type of rehabilitation program. And as they discussed this, they said, you know, maybe we should be paying attention to what we feed our prison inmates. Maybe we should be paying attention to what we feed our young people who are at the greatest risk of ending up in prison. Not just maybe. This was a powerful, powerful study that showed that even a, even a small amount of the right minerals, the right nutrients can literally transform behavior and change an impulsive young man into a thoughtful young man, into a man that is now not relying on his lower brain to make all his decisions, but having taken control of his emotions with a higher brain. This gives us hope. This, is, this, is, this can give us victory. So it was, um, I used to think that it was Thomas Edison who said this, let foods be your medicine and medicine be your foods. In fact, he did say it many times. But of course, where did he take it from? Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine. We need to be paying attention. Hippocrates also said, do no harm. Do no harm. But what about doing some good? What about actually focusing on the prime priority issues that actually help the body heal naturally. Let your foods be your medicine. But even before Hippocrates, I wonder where he got it. Genesis, the very beginning of the book of creation, says, and God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. We have it right there in the creator's owner's manual for the human body. Take advantage of whole plant-based foods because they literally transform. They literally change the genetic expression in a powerful, powerful way. So epigenetic change in our exposome, what is in your exposome in your life right now that is, that is overriding and dominating your genetic expression? See, that's an important question that we should be asking, each one of us. I ask that question regularly for myself. What am I doing? What am I exposed to? What, what's in my environment? What's in my food? What, what, what is in my thought processes? Am I allowing myself to get frustrated over rushing to the seminar to be here at least two minutes before it starts? It's funny, just, just coming over here this, this today, 
you know, I'm coming up the, uh, coming up the hill from Temecula, and there's cars in front of me that are going slower than I want to go. But remember, I'm not in charge of that. It's not, it's not their fault that I'm late. I can't let that upset me. Even if I am late, I can't let that upset me. And I can, by choice, calm that right down. And that changes my genetic expression. That changes the impact on my health. Now, what about the relationship between coffee and cardiovascular disease? Some of you might be saying, whoa, that's a big switch. Where did that come from? It actually is not a big switch. Many lifestyle medicine experts have pointed out that coffee is actually, can be referred to as liquid stress. Now, is stress always a bad thing? No. <laughs> stress can save your life. Uh, uh, stress, uh, show me somebody who has no stress whatsoever, and I'll show you a dead person. It's funny, but it's true. You cannot be alive and not have some stress. It's actually referred to by the, the, the um, well-known endocrinologist from many decades ago, Dr. Hans Seye. It's referred to as eustress. You have to have the right amount of stress in your life or else you will not be healthy. If you have lost your ability to release stress hormone adequately, and I should say optimally, you're not going to be healthy. If you have low stress hormones all the time, you're going to feel horrible. You're going to be in severe fatigue. We call it adrenal fatigue. So you don't want a life without any stress. You want to learn how to manage and optimize stress in the right way. You want to master it not destroy it, because by destroying stress completely, you've destroyed your own health. So, so it, it's important to have this discussion because there is a lot of talk these days about the benefits of coffee, of the benefits of caffeine. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, if, if, you, if you haven't seen it, Google it. It's like, it's just a huge amount of work and even research that seems to imply that coffee and caffeine is actually good for you. And if, you are not, if you're not drinking coffee and you're not taking caffeine, you're missing out on a very important wellness strategy. So what's the truth? There was, a, <clears throat> there was a very large study conducted by Harvard with a health professional follow-up study. We're looking at about 42,000 men in this study and about 84,000 women. We're not talking about a small little pilot study here. We're talking about a huge epidemiologic study. Epidemiologic studies, which is the typical type of study, does not show cause and effect. It shows association. 
Association gives us a potential to theorize at a potential cause and effect. You understand? It's it's really tough for the average individual. Because uh, when I was in in my professional training, one one of the best textbooks I ever bought was a little booklet that was entitled, How to Lie with Statistics. And what's interesting is that I can spew out all kinds of accurate information and totally mislead you. It's accurate. But your interpretation of what I said is where the deception is. For instance, the Harvard study showed that men and women who consumed six or more cups of coffee a day, over the next eight years, they were were over 50% less likely to develop diabetes. Now, guess what uh, corporation took a hold of that that data and and promoted it all over Reader's Digest and Newsweek and in every journal and even medical journals. marketing, right? Wow, got this huge Harvard study showing that people who drink six or more cups of coffee a day have over a 50% decrease in risk of developing diabetes over an eight-year period. And I believe that study. It's an accurate study. But how are you interpreting what I just told you? See, the average person who hears that was going like, whoa, okay, that's interesting, but man, if I drank six or more cups of coffee a day, I'd be a mess. I mean, I'd be, you know, I'd be, you know, I'd be all over the place, and, and I, nobody could live with me, and so you know, I can't do that. But hey, if, if six or seven or eight is good, maybe I'll just get a little bit of wellness. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take, have one or two cups of coffee a day, and I'll just, you know, that, I'll be moderate. <laughs> I'll be prudent. I'll be safe. I'm not going to go to an extreme here. I'm just going to use a little bit. Here's the problem with that approach. Is that essentially all the data shows is that people who use one to two to three cups of coffee a day actually have higher risk for diabetes, higher risk for blood pressure, higher risk of heart disease. What? So how can it be then that people are drinking six or more cups of coffee a day actually have lower risk? That's where we have to learn how to think from cause to effect. That's where we have to now start using our frontal lobe, which I think we all have, okay, and, and putting it all together in a way that makes sense. Because, see, if you look at the clinical studies, these are the studies where they actually give caffeine or coffee to people and then measure what happens to the body. Guess what happens? Okay, blood sugars shoot way up. Blood pressure shoots up, your heart starts racing faster, all kinds of things happen. Now, is there any benefit from drinking coffee or using caffeine? What's the answer? No, there is benefit. Why would people do it if there wasn't any benefit? Of course there's benefit. But what's the next question we have to ask? Yeah, what's the downside? Okay, so here's the benefit. 
So for people who have habitually learned to have that cup or two of coffee a day and they feel better at the time, well, it's, it's a reasonable thing for them to continue to do doing that because they feel like it's actually helping them, right? It takes that, the cobwebs out. It helps you kind of focus in on the day. It helps you do things more, more effic- effectively. It, it makes you more agreeable. Did you know that? That the studies show that, that, that coffee and caffeine actually is a mild hypnotic. It can actually make you more agreeable. Like, oh, yeah, that, okay, that sounds good. Okay, why? It just, it just, just kind of loosens you up. So there's a lot of benefits, but we need to be asking a question overall, looking at the long term, where is there a benefit long term? Or is there a problem? Why would a group of people over eight years who are drinking so much coffee actually have a lower risk? Let me tell you my belief on that. Is that people who drink that much coffee have adrenal fatigue. They're not producing enough stress hormone. They're not producing enough cortisol. And so they're medicating their energy levels and their mood and, and just trying to feel normal by drinking coffee. By the way, it's the same thing with smokers. Smokers aren't, aren't smoking so they feel better than non-smokers. They're smoking more and more and more so they can try to feel almost as good as non-smokers. Right? Smoking every cigarette makes them feel better. But is there a cost? Absolutely. They all know that, but you know, right now we're under stress. If I have a cigarette right now, am I going to feel less stressed? Probably. I've never smoked in my life, but when I feel stressed and I catch a little whiff of cigarette smoke, I actually like it. I'm not going to smoke. Why? Because I'm using my frontal lobe to say, yeah, that might help calm my stress down temporarily, but at what cost? See, so we always need to look at benefit-cost ratio. That's the challenge. And so, so the, the bottom line is that we're dealing, we're dealing with a problem of burning out the adrenals. I've had many cases of individuals who all their... Uh, Adult lives, they're the, the executive, the type A executive types that, man, they're just getting stuff done and, you know, they're just drinking coffee all morning long to keep that, that high level of production going. And they do that for decades. And then they hit their mid-50s or whenever it might be and they crash. They go like, I just can't do this anymore. That, you know, I used to be able to, just work hard all the time, and now I can't do it anymore. Why? Because the strategy to optimize energy and control stress right now was a strategy that actually tore down the adrenals. So our goal is to figure out how do we manage stress, feel better right now, and feel better later, and not tear down the adrenals, but actually build them back up so the adrenals can produce cortisol as you need optimally, just like the smoker. Okay? The smoker who's ha- is smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, 
the goal isn't to just stop smoking. The goal is to find a wellness group of strategies that makes them feel so much better that now they don't need to smoke anymore. Right? Because that's the only way it's going to really work. Otherwise, they're just going to be miserable, miserable, unhealthy non-smokers. Right? We have to find a solution that works, that takes the place of that dysfunctional common solution that seems to work for more people, but just destroys our health in the process. So, by the way, there's, there's a great way to, to test for adrenal fatigue. When I have a patient come into me who, who says, man, I just, you know, I'm just tired, especially if it's mid to late morning or especially if it's mid to late afternoon, I actually do a four-hour glucose tolerance test and measure insulin production at fasting one and two hours and cortisol, stress hormone production at fasting three and four hours. It's the perfect test to evaluate, do you have prediabetes or diabetes? Or do you have high insulin levels, which drive cardiovascular disease and cancer? And do you have normal cortisol output or low cortisol output? Does your cortisol crash? Do your adrenals basically say, can't do this anymore? and they go offline. So it's a four-hour test, a hassle of a test, but it gives us a three-dimensional model of how, what's all the factors that are contributing to perception of stress physiologically in the body. And then we know which parts to fix because we've measured it. So we want to optimize adrenal fatigue. You see, we can choose thoughtfully the direction that we go. We've, we've been saying all along that chronic disease and health dysfunction is mostly caused by a deficiency, a lack of nourishment, a missing strategy. Adrenal fatigue is also caused by poor digestion, which we covered previously. So we need to make sure that we're taking advantage of optimizing digestion. In fact, one of the challenges with caffeine is that it impairs digestion. It impairs the ability to absorb minerals into the system. It, it causes your kidneys to flush out good things. We don't have time to go through all the pros and cons. We could spend a whole two hours just talking about the studies on caffeine and coffee. But did you know I work with women sometimes who are eager to have another child or to have a child? And there's all kinds of things in, that influence a woman's ability to be fertile. Do you know what the number one cause of spontaneous abortion in the first trimester is? Number one cause, based on my reading at least, it's caffeine. It's not alcohol, not smoking, it's caffeine. Now, alcohol will cause spontaneous abortion, no question. Uh, tobacco smoke will, or any form of tobacco will cause spontaneous abortion. But so many people use caffeine habitually that it actually is the number one. It, it, it beats the other two by a long ways. So that's why the first thing I, I say to any young couple who are trying to have a child, stay away from drugs or chemicals, caffeine, that is a known teratogen. It's a known cancer-causing chemical. And it interferes with so many processes of the body. 
We, we know that just not taking care of digestion properly can cause anxiety attacks. So we got to look at this holistically. We, we need to recognize that the body likes to be on a schedule. I'm not talking about being rigorous. I'm talking about being balanced. I'm talking about make, that making plans to go to bed at a certain time most nights, to get up at a certain time, to get outside in the sunlight, to let that synchronize how the body works, to, to pay, always eat breakfast, to always eat lunch, to if you're trying to lose weight or you're trying to lower blood sugars or blood fats or blood pressure, eat a lighter uh, evening meal or none at all, okay? Find a balance, okay? And work on a schedule that you know will be good for your body. One of the most stressful things to our genes and to our expression is not having a schedule that the body can anticipate. The body likes to know, in about two hours, I'm going to be waking up. In about two hours, I'm going to be eating. In about two hours, I'm going to be going to bed. And when we don't follow that general schedule, the body gets stressed. So that's one reason we're under stress so much is because we're not paying attention to the circadian rhythm, the natural light-dark cycle the timeliness, the chronobiology of health. So as we end tonight, this question, what do I limit and what do I add? We've been going through all kinds of wellness strategies in this series. And they're designed to, to cause you to really think about what you're doing. I, you know, I could have just given you a five-page handout and said, read it, we're good. You know, come back in a year, right? Some people love less. That's great, okay? But see, life and wellness isn't about just following a list. It's about understanding. It's about recognizing all the factors that subtly influence our health in such a powerful, powerful way. So this week in your wellness program, what I would encourage you to do is to, again, ask you this question. Based on what I learned in this session, what do I limit? What do I add? What do I change? Not in a, not in a rigid, legalistic way, but in a way that you're being empowered, right? Where I'm, I'm optimizing who I can become physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. It's all about optimizing. Okay? And, and recognizing all along that there is an intimate relationship between all of those factors, what we do in our social life, what we do in our, in our, in our physical, for our physical health, how we interact emotionally, what's going on spiritually, are we taking time to connect with our spirituality, all those things interrelate. They influence each other across the board. You can't just cut one off. They all influence each other. What do I limit? What do I add? Thank you. Our question and answers. And so, Pastor Sam, what do we got? We're going to start with the first question. Last week you stated that Alpha lipoic acid can cure neuropathy. Can you please explain how I should take this? Should I continue to take 
neurontin and add the alpha lipoic acid? What should I look for to know when to taper off or discontinue neurontin? Okay, so the question is, uh, all right, I, ha I have neuropathy, I have nerve pain, uh, and, and I'm taking a prescription medicine for it. Can I still take alpha lipoic acid? Alpha lipoic acid is a nutrient. You're not going to get interactions with your medicines typically with that. So the, the short answer in general is most people can do that just fine. Uh, I, I uh, recently saw an individual who had so much neuropathy and so much damage to their foot that their podiatrist has, has had to do multiple surgeries on their foot. One of the reasons that he continues to get an infection in his foot is that he can't feel. So he goes, plays golf, you know, he's having such a good time, he just keeps playing, keeps playing, not realizing that he's developing a huge blister and sore on the bottom of his foot. But he's got neuropathy, he's got nerve damage, he can't feel it. Pain is a blessing. Right? Lepers who have lost their ability to feel pain. It's a catastrophe. Take advantage of pain. Learn from it. Okay? And then learn how to manage it from the cause-effect relationship. And so um, alpha lipoic acid as a nutrient literally gets in and helps heal that damaged nerve. The omega-3 fatty acid is also very important there. Uh, so, so typically, the dose is 300 milligrams twice a day. Um, be, beware, though, that if you take more than that, that can, actually, that can actually impair thyroid function to a degree. So balance, right? If a little bit is good, well, I'm going to take it four times a day. Maybe that'd be better. No, okay? Always work within the limits that science has provided answers for. We have some more questions from our audience as well, and we want to invite you to come up and share with us if you have any questions. So Christina, she's going to be sharing with us at this moment. I was wondering with uh, caffeine, if let's say you've um, been a caffeine addict all your life, how long does it take before your adrenals kick back in and start functioning properly? What's that more or less, what's that period of suffering <laughs> that I would need to go through? <laughs> That's a great question. So, 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 all right, so maybe, you know, maybe I'm starting to understand, okay, yeah, does it, caffeine or coffee helps me feel better, but maybe the cost is too great. What do I do now? You know, I'm kind of stuck. You know, uh, I'm, a, I'm an addict. There's a lot of caffeine addicts out there, a lot. Um, I could tell you about my stories, but there's no time. Um, I don't use caffeine at all, but there's been times in my life when I did, and I was really sorry that I did. <laughs> uh, but the, <clears throat> the key with regards to caffeine withdrawal is that your adrenals were already low, Caffeine forces a weak adrenal to work harder, which makes you feel better because it's releasing more stress 
hormone, more adequate stress hormone, so you feel good. You feel you stress. Uh, you're able to concentrate. You're you know, able to be nice, you know, all those good things. Uh, but, but now, when the, a weak adrenal is exposed to the lack of caffeine, now it's just, whew, finally, I'm not being whipped to death here. I can actually start resting and recuperating. But as you pointed out, that recuperation phase can be a while. So here's my initial recommendation to anybody who, after doing tests, they go, oh, man, what do I do? You know, I'm, I'm drinking four or five cups of coffee a day, and I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can quit. Well, prudence suggests is that you don't just quit cold turkey. Some people get away with it. But see, the point is, is looking down the line and just making good decisions and improving over time. So the, the rough rule clinically is you cut by 50% every five, five to seven days and basically gradually wean off of it over a month. Okay, so that, that's, you know, you can take a deep breath now because that's more doable. Okay, and then, but in the process, start immediately giving the body what it needs. And, and uh, the, essentially, a scenario like that of adrenal fatigue means that the adrenals needs the nutrients that support uh, their restoration. We call it having inadequate adrenal reserve capacity. It's been said, and I don't know if there's been actual research on this, but it's been said that, you, that the, the uh, healthy organ system should have about seven times its normal capacity. Should, you know, it should be able to handle seven times what it normally does in a day. That's what we call reserve capacity. So the adrenals are the vital force of the body. The, the adrenals are what stimulate the release of various hormones, but in particular cortisol. And without producing enough cortisol, the blood sugar crashes down. We just get all brain fog-ish. Uh, we get moody. We can get hostile. We, <clears throat> we have low energy. I mean, a lot of bad things happen when your cortisol isn't optimal. So it's understandable why many people feel like they got to have their caffeine fixed because it, it is their solution, but it's further aggravating the problem. The adrenals are losing that reserve. So the, the, that's why I typically do this four-hour glucose tolerance test to look at the big picture, to look at blood sugar highs and lows. Is it just purely an adrenal fatigue where the blood sugars never go up when exposed to a sugar drink? Or is there also a pre-diabetic, diabetic scenario involved in that, which kind of changes how you approach it? Uh, but essentially, you treat all the obvious things. You give optimal nutrition. You optimize the diet. You, you go plant-based where you're using healthy proteins, healthy fats, and healthy high-fiber carbohydrates together. Okay, So it's not a super low... Um, fat diet, you're choosing things like, you know, eat some avocados, eat some nuts, eat some healthy whole food fat foods. And then for people with adrenal fatigue or actually any st major stress 
related condition, they may need a little bit more of healthy protein. So that's where legumes, beans, peas, lentils in their diet help stabilize the blood sugar and takes the stress off of the adrenals. Because when do, when do the adrenals have to kick in the most? It's when they're stressed. Okay, now, oh, I'm stressed, I got to make cortisol, but there's, you know, there's no energy left there. So we take the stress away by stabilizing the blood sugars naturally so the adrenals don't have to make cortisol to tell the liver to stabilize blood sugars. So healthy amounts of protein help do that. And so I even will give, I, I give a, a product to my patients called Glycemic Foundation, which is just what it says. It's, it, it helps stabilize blood sugars, takes the stress off the adrenals. Uh, and then I even add a little bit of veg- vegetable pea protein or rice protein to further stabilize that better, and, and that just helps really improve adrenals. So that, ge- that takes some, a lot of the stress away from caffeine withdrawal. Uh, so so those, there's, there's other things too, but those would be some of the core things to consider. Also, getting outside in the early morning light is beneficial for that whole adrenal uh, pituitary str- uh, uh, stress axis where, where the, the cortisols fluctuate a lot. Being in fresh air, exercising, bright light helps stabilize that further. So I, really everything that we've been talking about so far is part of the treatment plan for adrenal fatigue okay, or caffeine withdrawal. And the, another important thing about this is that caffeine free bases nicotine and vice versa. Think about that for a second. The reason that they, people who are drinking coffee have a real hard time stopping smoking if they smoke. Why? Because, because when, when they, they have a cup of coffee, it doesn't seem to work as well unless they have a cigarette with it because they freebase each other. They exponentially increase the power or the effect of that drug when taken together. And, and so, so if somebody's trying to stop smoking, you've got to get away from coffee because it freebases it. And the same thing is true the other way around, okay? If somebody's struggling with adrenal fatigue, we've got to find ways to help them stop smoking too. We have another question from our audience, and I'm going to invite Evan to come, and he's going to share with us. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about alternative beverages like decaffeinated coffee or, or tea that doesn't have caffeine in it. Uh, what's your uh, recommendation? Yeah, on a that? great practical question. Uh, my, my view on that is to, I, I like the idea. If you like a warm drink, choose an herbal tea that's non-caffeinated. I prefer the non-caffeinated herbal teas over the decaffeinated. Well, it's, it's just because it's, you, know, to, you have to process something to decaffeinate it. And decaf doesn't really mean it doesn't have caffeine. That's a common misperception mis, uh, is that decaf coffee actually has caffeine in it. Okay? It's just not as much. Just not as much. And so, you, so you're still tweaking an adrenal scenario by, by doing that. It's, it's a step in the right direction. In fact, that, that would be you know, one way to kind of wean yourself off of, of the level of caffeine that you've been using if, if you do use caffeine. Uh, so, 
Um, and there's, there's, other, there's other options. There's cereal coffees. There's Postum. There's, there's various, various cereal coffees out there that, that are good. But be careful what you put on it. Okay. That's one of the big challenges with just, you know, warm drinks in general is that we're always adding something to it that actually may be worse for, worse for you than the drink itself. Uh, so, so if you're using hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated uh, creamers, even though they could be vegan, but if they're partially hydrogenated, it's well, they, they actually increase heart disease risk more than saturated fat. So, so stay away from anything partially hydrogenated and, uh, and also stay away from artificial sugars. We've talked about that already, so I don't think we have to go into that. But artificial sugars, yeah, it makes something taste really sweet, but, um, but it actually is a chemical that increases inflammation and creates more problems. So... So I, I would rather you use honey or, or, or even a little sugar than to use an artificial sugar. Again, we're talking about balance, balance here. Another question comes from Melissa, and she lives in Michigan, and she asks, can a person's fasting serum insulin level be too low? Great question. Can, uh, can the fasting insulin level be too low? Well, the, the, it, there's no quick answer to that. And that is that if, if your blood sugars are good all the time, if your fasting blood sugar is optimal, and your fasting insulin looks like it's too low, maybe your insulin sensitivity is so good that you only need that, mon- that amount of insulin. So my initial impression is don't worry too much about a low fasting insulin level unless you clearly have a blood sugar problem. So for instance, if, if somebody has diabetes and have had diabetes for many years, what happens over time to the pancreas? You know, you can only, only produce so much excess insulin for so many years before the pancreas goes, like the adrenals, <laughs> time out, I can't do this anymore. And as soon as the pancreas stops producing that excessively high dose of insulin in an attempt to control blood sugars, what happens to blood sugars now? Now the blood sugars just go sky high. So if somebody has a low insulin level at the same time as a high blood sugar level, that would indicate that they have gone into pancreatic fatigue. But blood sugars are completely fine before and after exposure to carbohydrates. I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. Very good. Um, This comes from Sarah, and she's interested in to join the study. um, If you're looking for people, she'd like to (laughs) join. Um, And she's asked this following question. I'm slowly healing, but the symptoms are coming back. And she mentions abdominal pain. Lots of gas, constipation. What do I do? Okay, so when there's a digestive problem, you got to regroup and you got to ask the question what it might be triggering my digestive problem? Um, if, if there's bloating and pain, then we need to, there, there's a likelihood that the stomach is not producing adequate uh, digestive enzymes. 
that the pancreas is not producing adequate digestive enzymes. And so that would be a reasonable thing to do, is to optimize the, the supplementation of digestive enzymes to make up the difference to what the body is not able to do at the moment. Okay? Um, the other thing is you have to heal the stomach. Okay? What are the things that are damaging the stomach? You've got to remove the likely offending foods or chemicals in your environment that's causing that damage, and, and then use, use natural products that can actually heal the stomach. Aloe vera juice, uh, cabbage juice extract, gastrozyme is a chewable supplement, gastrocare is a chewable supplement. All those things help heal the stomach lining and allow them to maybe start incorporating some hydrochloric acid as a way to further digest. So um, those, are, those questions are, are a little bit tough because they have to be individualized. And so you need to work with a healthcare provider that's knowledgeable about digestion as it relates to overall health to make it right for you. We have another question from our audience. And this is Dale, and he's going to be sharing with us. Talking about sweeteners, what's the benefit of molasses? Well, it's sweet. <laughs> but it's so, not as sweet as honey. Not sweet. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, um, I think that using these natural sweeteners in moderation is a good thing. We just need to understand our bodies, right? If somebody has out-of-control diabetes, and they're looking for a way to try to reverse that diabetes, then maybe, maybe it'd be a good idea to stay away from molasses and honey and other obvious sugary foods, control fruit intake, etc., until we get a grasp of what's going on, and then we can gradually reintroduce it once we have balance. Uh, so it just depends on the person. Uh, I have no problem using a little molasses, using a little honey as part of a balanced meal. I love uh, it. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, so we have two endorsements. <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask one question, and it has two parts to it. Um, the relationship between vitamins and stress, and I'm thinking here specifically vitamin B, and specifically B12, and can you take too much of it? Okay. <laughs> well, uh, all right. Can you take too much of a vitamin as it relates to stress? Well, that's a t trick question, Pastor, because too much is too much, right? And so the question is, what is too much? And maybe even more importantly, what's optimal? When it comes to many vitamins, especially water-soluble vitamins like the B vitamins, vitamin C, and so forth, there's really very little evidence that there is a point where you're definitely doing harm by taking an excessive level. Having said that, though, our goal is not to just load up with on all, all kinds of vitamins. Our goal is to find balance. Our goal is to find what is optimal. And, and so that's where we look at the evidence in the medical and the nutritional literature as to what seems prudent. So when I give recommendations to patients, I'm basing it based on what seems to work based on all the research that I've seen as we apply it to their unique individual situation. So um, 
One of the ways to evaluate how much of the B vitamins you need, in particular B12, um, the best form in my opinion is methylcobalamin, uh, or, or a vitamin B9, which is folate, the best form would be methylfolate, is to start looking at labs that relate to vitamin B need. And, and, and the first lab is to actually do a vitamin B12 folate level. Now, if you're taking B12 and folate already, it's less important to do that test because you're probably going to be high normal to high. That's kind of where you want to be on those nutrients. But if you've not been on any supplement for a while, it'd be actually good to check to see if you're actually running low. Many people are. It used to be thought that B12 was just, you know, some bogus, you know, scheme to you know, give people hope where there was no hope. Uh, but a huge multiple university study on B12 showed that men and women who had low normal levels of B12, in fact, they were in the, the lower third of normal. They didn't have low levels. They were just on the low side of normal, which means what? Clinically, it means normal. Okay? So, so if you've ever heard, yeah, your labs are normal, that doesn't mean... They're optimal at all, by the way. It just means they're normal, right? The new normal is not healthy. So never accept normal is, is good. It might be good, but make sure it's good. So, so sometimes you need to be high normal. Sometimes you need to be low normal. And so um, the study showed that people who were in the lower third of normal were actually much more likely at the time of death, to show shrinkage to the brain. And, you know, that might sound a little bit, you know, weird, like, you know, kind of voodoo, brain shrinkage, head shrinkers, but actually it's true. Why would a brain shrink? Because it's a lost functional cellular volume. It's the, uh, it's the same thing when your adrenals get tired out and weak, they shrink. When your pancreas gets worn out, it shrinks. So we want to avoid a shrinking brain, right? Okay. And so the, the take-home message here is that, is that most people are likely to be, 12, be B12 insufficient. They're not optimal. So I don't see any reason why anybody should be avoiding taking a... a prudent dose of methylcobalamin um, to, to seek to optimize blood levels. Other blood tests to do there would be homocysteine. Homocysteine is, uh, is a very important amino acid protein in the blood that if elevated above nine represents unnecessary, broad risk to our body and our health. Neurologically, to the brain, um, it, it represents risk to the kidneys, to the bones, to, to the heart, and, and so forth. And, and one of the main reasons homocysteine is elevated is because we're not getting enough of the B12 and the folate to help the enzyme break it down. See, vitamins and minerals are cofactors. They're the nuts and bolts of your machinery. If you're weak on them, your machine's going to fall apart. 
Okay? You, your enzymes can't break down things normally or optimally if we're weak on the cofactors, the vitamins and the minerals. So, so we should always seek to figure out what we're deficient in and then fix that. So that's, again, why the digestion is so critical. Without a good digestion, even on a good diet, you're not going to be optimally providing those, uh, those nutrients. Another test would be a gene test called MTHFR, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. Uh, and all this can be seen on uh, my website, dryoungberg.com. Look at the, the, the tab on the homepage that says labs. You can start looking at labs, some of the basic labs that are reasonable for most people to take. If you have that gene mutation, that means you're going to need a lot more vitamin B12 and folate and other nutrients as well. And it's more important to fix digestion. So those are just a few simple clinical pearls that everybody should be taking advantage of. Okay, we want to thank our audience and those watching online for sharing with us today. And we also want to thank Dr. West Youngberg for tonight's presentation. Thank you.